Well, hello, how are you? It's good to see you. Can you say a big hello? Are you awake? Yeah, and a greeting to those of you joining us over at Central Abbey, East Abbey, and Mission. Great to have you with us. And then knowing there's a few folks joining us online still, so welcome to you as well. So you're going to need your Bibles. Eventually, we are going to get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, this new series, Foundations for Flourishing. Uh, each week, we are going to grab a text out of Genesis as the starting point, talking about the original foundation. So we're going to be in Genesis 3 in a little bit, so uh, you may want to have your Bible's open, but as I mentioned, we are starting, as of last weekend, a new five-week topical series of messages or a short little season called Foundations for Flourishing, based on this assumption, the assumption that every man, woman, boy, and girl who are listening to a message like this has an innate desire within you for a good life. Regardless of how you would identify that, what words you might use, a blessed life, a flourishing life, an abundant life, a pleasurable life, whatever words you might use, that innate in the human creature is this desire, that no one sets out to self-destroy their own life. We all want to have a good life. And so the question, okay, if that's your goal, then upon what foundation are you going to build that life? Uh, so last weekend, uh, through a picture on the screen of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the most famous bell tower in the world that was built on a faulty foundation. This image would remind you of two summers ago, just 2021, in Sarasota, Florida. In the middle of the night, a 12-story condo gave way and 98 souls were lost in that catastrophe. Engineers would tell us it was because of a faulty design that water was able to infiltrate the foundation and corrode the reinforcing steel, and ultimately that building, after many years, collapsed. Uh, in our personal lives as well, whenever you see an individual life collapse, you can guarantee there is some engineering flaw, some foundation flaw in the life itself. Foundations for flourishing. So what I need to remind you of is that Northview Church is a church that believes the Bible is true. Now, you might say, tell us something we don't know, Pastor, but the fact of the matter is that not every church would make that statement in the day and age that we're living in. So we teach and preach from the Bible. We believe it to be authoritative, and we believe it to be foundational for how we live our daily lives. Uh, if you've happened to scroll through our confession of faith, our statement of faith on our website about God's revelation, about God's word, it says this on our website, we believe that God has made his power and deity known in creation. He revealed himself also in word and deed in the Old Testament. He revealed himself supremely and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. We believe that all scripture, both Old and New Testaments, are inspired by God as men were moved by the Holy Spirit. We accept the entire Bible to the infallible word of God, the final, complete, and authoritative guide for the faith and life of Christian discipleship. That's what we believe. Now, I started with those words to lay a foundation for where we're headed in this series, and specifically today. Uh, last weekend, we talked about the major winds that are blowing up against our culture and some seismic shifts in how we relate to each other as human beings, and three specific challenges. The challenge of racism, which has been with us from the foundation of the world, and every time and place and generation, racism has raised its ugly head, but in, in our day, with the so-called critical race theory and social justice movement, it has changed the conversation, the sanctity of human life. 
from conception until natural death and the redefinition of personhood and what it means to be a human versus what it means to be a person. And are some human lives of inherently more value than other human lives? Are some human lives disposable? Can we do away with them? And then finally, the radical reshaping of our cultural understanding of human sexuality, that God created us to be men and women, male and female. And how do we relate to one another in these sexual bodies that God has given to us in the day and age that we live in? And there's a a lot more topics we could talk about, but those are the three major ones, I believe, that are blowing up against us in the day and age that we live in, unsettling our realities. And if we're going to respond well, if the house that we are building is going to stand, to use Jesus' metaphor, then there are two pillars that we need to undergird these conversations. And so last weekend, we laid out a foundation for a belief in God, and we talked about the necessity for a God-shaped worldview or the theistic worldview. Now, I recognize that starting a series of messages on the May long weekend might not be the smartest thing to do. Uh, We're headed into summer, uh, people travel, and we know historically, particularly on the May long weekend, that if our attendance is 60 to 70% of normal, that is just simply how it is. It's the first beautiful long weekend of the year, and it was the same last weekend, which means that over a thousand people that normally attend Northview were not here last weekend. So summary, if you were one of those who were traveling last weekend... You want that message in one line. It was this, that if we believe God exists, Genesis 1-1 was our text, in the beginning, God. Then by implication as creator, he has every right to direct the affairs of our life. So that's sort of the summary, uh, 40 minutes in one sentence. But would really encourage you, go online and listen to that message because these two messages are foundational for the three important ones that are gonna follow. But a second foundational tenet of the Christian faith is this, that not only does God exist, last weekend's message, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, but that he is also a speaking God, that he is not silent. And herein lies a central battle over our lives. To whom are you going to listen? As you build this life of yours, And as you desire a good life, an abundant life, a blessed life, who will you entrust yourself to? From whom are you willing to learn? And to what source of authority will you turn as you build your life? And so we need to talk about the necessity for a biblically transformed mind, that how we think matters. A biblically transformed mind. Mind. And so here's where we're headed today. My big idea, if you will, is simply this, that there is a battle being waged over our lives. And it is a battle for truth. It is a battle for the Bible. It is primarily a battlefield, a battlefield for our mind. And what I hope to accomplish in the next couple hours is to let you know clearly where Northview Community Church stands on its relationship to the Bible. And then I want to challenge every one of you to make this book the operating manual of your life. That's simple. Where does the church stand and where do you stand? That's really my ultimate goal. And if I had one desired outcome for this message, it would be this, that we would be men and women of this book, not just in intellectual assent, not just salute and say yes and amen, but in the day in and day out realities of our lives. That this book and all that it teaches would be our foundation for flourishing. So in the next little bit, we're gonna talk about four aspects of this conversation that are important. 
Number one, the truth that God does indeed speak. Secondly, we'll look at this battle in his history from a biblical point of view, the battle today just briefly, and then talk about equipping ourselves for the battle. So each one of those four sections will take approximately 30 minutes. Here we go. The truth that God speaks. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we have acknowledged this in many times, but God communicates in four primary ways in and through the creation, number one. God speaks in and through creation. So Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies above proclaim his handiwork. That Psalm goes on to say that there is not a place on the planet where that language is not spoken. Regardless of what your mother tongue is, this language is spoken in every place around the world. Romans 1 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So in other words, the mountains, the roar of the ocean, the desert when it is in bloom, the breadbasket of the prairies, the northern lights, a tropical sunset, you name it, wherever you go on the planet, creation shouts to us, there's a God, there's a designer, there's a creator. It awakens within us a holy sense of awe. Secondly, God speaks in and through the human conscience. Now, this is quite interesting, not just for believers, but also for unbelievers. So Romans 2 says this, that when Gentiles, and in this context, that means unbelievers, those who aren't following the law of God, those outside faith, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? But the law isn't in them, and yet they have this conscience. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's what anthropologists call the God consciousness. That no matter where you go on the planet, the most civilized civilizations, however you define that, to the most primitive civilizations, every single tribe, nation, and tongue has an inner consciousness of good and evil, right and wrong. It may be defined in different ways in different cultures, but there is an innate sense of human guilt for when they've done something wrong. Where does that come from? It is the God-given conscience as God speaks to us. In and through Jesus himself, we are told in the book of Hebrews... That long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That God took it upon himself to come and dwell among us. That he took on human flesh. That Jesus revealed the father to us. That it was God incarnate walking among us. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father, he says. To reveal all that God is. To come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then finally, he reveals himself in and through the written word, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As I'm making my way through this journey of life, I need a lamp on my pathway. And 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, we could spend a lot of time there. But simply laying out the starting point for the conversation, our belief that not only does God exist, last weekend's message, a theistic worldview, but that God speaks. He reveals. He is not silent. 
So the Bible gives us some history on this, this battle in history, the, the story of opposition, of opposition within the human heart and also opposition in the spiritual realm. And so we're going to look at that battle from a biblical point of view. Uh, the Bible gives us multiple, multiple warning points. Uh, when Paul was talking with a group of elders from a church uh, in Ephesus, so the leaders of the local church, he said this in Acts 20, I know that after I depart, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and then look at this key phrase, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert. Paul warning the leaders of the church, the elders of the church. It's your job to watch over the theology of the church. He writes to a young leader, a young pastor named Timothy, and he says this, the time is going to come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In other words, Timothy, understand this, that the day is going to come when people won't want to listen to you if they don't agree with you. If your teaching doesn't uh, uh, suit their passions, they'll just go down the road and they'll find some teacher who says what they want to hear. So the listener becomes the instructor to the teacher in this case. But important to note that this battle is actually the oldest battle on earth. The very first conversation about God happened in the Garden of Eden between the serpent, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, the liar, the ancient serpent he is called, whispering confusion into Eve's ear. In Genesis 3.1, did God actually say? Now, the text reads like this, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we have looked at this text several times uh, in the last three years. It's come up in various messages. And some of you who have really good memories might remember that back in the fall of 2020, before that cursed thing called COVID, we did a series on spiritual warfare, fall of 2020. Talking about the enemy of our souls who started a war in heaven, who lost that battle, was cast down to the earth, taking a third of the angels with him, who became the demonic forces, and that he has made it his business to oppose all that is good and true and right and beautiful ever since. And it's the image of God, that we are created in the image of God, that so angers him. So William Gurnell was a Puritan pastor, lived 400 years ago over in the UK. He wrote a, a book that's regarded by many as being the, the definitive and exhaustive work on spiritual warfare. An entire volume, 650 pages, tiny words and no pictures. 650 pages on spiritual warfare. And he writes this, it is the image of God reflected in you that so enrages hell. It is this at which the demons hurl their mightiest weapons. Because as men and women, we are created in the image of God. And because Satan hates God, he hates the image of God that he sees in God's children. And so Genesis 3 says, as we read, he is more crafty, he is cunning, he is shrewd, than any other beast. And so in other words, Satan is wise enough to know that a full-on frontal attack on the gospel will likely be met with resistance. And so he comes at Eve from the side, casting doubt, asking questions, twisting 
God's words in subtle ways. It's sort of like, hey, Eve, I'm just curious, you know. Can we talk about this? I, maybe I've misunderstood. You're a smart woman. Maybe you can help me. Did God actually say? Did he really say? Did he mean what we thought we heard him say? You're intelligent. Help me out. In Genesis 3, we hear the first words from his lips. And they cast doubt on what God has really said, and that has been his strategy ever since. To call into question the promises and the character of God. Doubt his goodness. Doubt his plan. Doubt his word. Did God really say? Now, if you notice, Satan uses God's own words against him, but he twists them slightly. So, so when he said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's close to what God said. It's a portion of what God said, but it's not. So if you look back a, a chapter earlier in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, you'll see what God actually said. Uh, the opposite is true. Not that you can't eat from any tree. You can eat from every tree except one. And so Eve answers him. And interesting that Eve gets the promises of God wrong on two fronts. Eve also misquotes God. First, she leaves out some deeper reality. So she says in verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman answers, No, we can eat from the trees. Now, what's interesting, and Hebrew scholars point out that she misses a significant implication in the original. So in the original, the NIV puts it this way, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The ESV that we just read, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden. And the NASB says, from any tree in the garden, you may eat freely. And you're like, well, so what? Free to eat, you may surely eat, you may eat freely. Uh, scholars tell us it is in the emphatic infinitive. An emphatic infinitive. Do you not know what that is? Uh, you're with me. I had to look it up. What does it mean? It means to continuously eat. An emphatic infinitive. In other words, feel free to graze. It's the same word, in fact, that is translated in other locations as the word feasting. You can feast throughout the garden. It's a powerful word picture. Look what I have given you. Look to the abundance that I've given you. You can eat to your heart's content. There's a banquet spread out in front of you throughout this garden. It is like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Everything in this room is edible. Feast. The abundant plan of God for our lives. Eat to your heart's content. But Eve's answer is kind of like, meh, we can eat. No, not we can eat. We can feast, not just eat. The way she repeats it is like, eh, whatever. It loses its power. It loses its oomph. If you want a Holy Spirit word, it loses its unction. We can feast. That's what she should have said. But then in her next sentence, she does the opposite. The first sentence, she took away from what God said. She said less. In the next sentence, she says more. Then what God says, she adds to the words. So verse three, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, the fact of the matter is God didn't say that. 
He did say you shouldn't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, but he didn't say you cannot touch it. Eve adds to the word of God. And I think that little highlight there in this old battle for the word of God highlights something that has happened in every generation, the human nature that wants to clarify and add to and explain God's word. So we'll just add a few more rules of our own. Not only can we not eat of that tree, but we should not even touch it. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, of course, were the most famous for doing this. Famously articulating the Old Testament law into 631 distinct commands. If 10 weren't enough, we'll give you 600. And so a category for everything. So uh, we've talked about this many times as well. Categories for work. Maybe taking a walk is working, right? So let's make some rules. You can walk up to a mile every day on the Sabbath, and that's not work. But if you walk more than a mile, that's work. No walking more than a mile on the Sabbath. We call it legalism, adding to God's word. But now that Satan has planted the thought in her mind, now that he has called God's nature into question and confused her thoughts and, and actually gets her misquoting God, now he comes in for the kill, and not with just innuendo, but now comes the full frontal attack in verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die directly contradicts God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. Satan doesn't even try to disguise it. In a bold moment, he simply calls God a liar. You will not die. God's holding out on you. So the battle for God's word is the oldest battle on the earth. The history of this battle, this biblical history, this battle being waged over our lives, a battle for the truth, a battle for our minds, a battle for the Bible, and the primary battlefield is the battlefield of our mind. And there's so much that we could consider in that Genesis 3 foundational text, but two critical points that we need to point out. Number one, this text illustrates Satan's primary strategy, his primary weapon, some believe his only weapon. The only weapon he has is the weapon of the lie. If he can get us to believe him, he comes deceiving, lying, accusing, raising doubts, casting innuendos, and he calls into question the very character of God, the trustworthiness of God. He hints at, he, he suggests a good loving God couldn't possibly want to limit your freedom, would he, Eve? And then the second critical theme is how we answer the liar. Now, some would say that Eve's mistake was even to begin the conversation to start with. That she should have just walked away. She shouldn't have engaged. She shouldn't have started listening. But once she was engaged, she's knocked off balance for one key reason. Because she doesn't rightly apply the word of God. In the first instance, she says less than God said. In the second, she says more. And so once again, this battle for God's word is the oldest battle on the earth. And the battle still rages today, so, as it has in every generation. We could talk about the attack on Scripture. We could talk about how in the highest level of the cultural elites today, in our universities, in our media, in the cultural movers and shakers of Hollywood, and, and we could step back and we could tisk, 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 you know what? But the fact that a secular world does not defend the Scripture shouldn't be a shock to any of us, Right? It shouldn't shock us that the world does not affirm the scripture. But what is more critical is Paul's many, many warnings 
that some even from within the church would arise. And there are so many great resources on this topic. We'll, we'll recommend a few books. Each week we'll recommend some books. We'll put them on the screen in a bit. But one of those is Alyssa Childers' book, Another Gospel. And it is one of the most readable, accessible books. It's a great resource. It's written as a response to so-called progressive Christianity. And if you have not heard that term, if you're not familiar with that term, progressive Christianity, it's a term that you should be familiar with. It's a term that you need to be aware of. But I would tell you this, at its core, it is actually nothing new. So-called progressive Christianity has nothing in it that is new. As you look at the tenets of this belief, it is simply age-old liberalism repackaged in new words for our generation. And Childers wrote a blog entitled, Five Signs Your Church Might Be Headed Towards Progressive Christianity. Woo, that's a great title. Let's look at them. She does a great job. I thought, why make up my own? I'll quote somebody else. She says, number one, there's a lower view of the Bible. A lower view of the Bible. And so you might hear statements like this. Well, the Bible's no longer our ultimate authority. We have to also listen to science and reason and rational thought with modern technology and information and education. We understand the scriptures differently than those ancient generations. Uh, the Bible should be taken seriously for sure, but not literally. Or things like the Bible contains the word of God but the Bible is not the word of God. When you hear statements like that, flags should go up in your ears. Amen. Number two, feelings are emphasized over facts. I understood what the text says, but it doesn't resonate with me. Or I simply disagree with it. I don't feel it. I, I think I shared this illustration before in the midst of COVID, all those wonderful days. Uh, as we were gathering various times, I had a conversation with a young man who was visiting in the foyer, and he wanted to tell me that our church had handled COVID wrong. And I thought, that's an interesting conversation. Let's talk about this. So I said to him, okay, so what do you do with Romans 13? And he said, what does that say? And I said, well, Romans 13 says we should submit to the governing authorities. And he says, I don't believe it. That got my attention. And I thought, well, what do you mean you don't believe it? I mean, I, I interpret it, understand it, apply it, whatever, but it's in the Bible. You don't believe it. And he said, no, it doesn't resonate with my spirit. And when you hear someone say things like that, it doesn't resonate with my spirit. It means their feelings trump the facts. I thought issue ABC, whatever the issue is, was sin until I got to know somebody living in that lifestyle. And now I've changed my mind because I've come to love these people. And surely Jesus wouldn't or couldn't send people to hell. Underneath all of these are a conviction that something can only be true if I feel it to be true. Uh, the third trait, if your church might be headed toward progressive Christianity, is this. Essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. So it is not that the historic Christianity is said as being wrong or simply we disagree with it, but we reinterpret the doctrine. So, for example, hell is not a real place where people would go to for all of eternity. Hell, rather, is what we create for ourselves in the here and now by not living authentic lives to ourselves. That's what hell is. Or I believe in the resurrection. You believe in the resurrection. That's great. I do too. But not the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. It was just a metaphor. It is to give us hope. It is to be an example. It is not a historic fact, but a beautiful picture and a hopeful image. That's what the resurrection is all about. Uh, the fourth is similar to the third in that the fact that historic terms 
Oh, historic teams. No, historic terms are redefined. So using linguistic gymnastics to make doctrines say something that they don't actually say. So the classic is, is this book inspired? Uh, well, of course that book's inspired. It's incredibly inspirational. But what they mean when they say inspired in that sense is like, it's like a Hallmark card. It gives me a warm fuzzy, but it is certainly not God-breathed inspired. It is not authoritative. It is not infallible. You would never use the word inerrant. Or the word love. What does love mean? God is love. But love means now accepting and affirming all that I have chosen to be true about me. It's not the love that would be willing to offend me by speaking truth into my life. It's not the love that would pull me out of traffic for my safety. And so Childers goes on to say, you know what? If words mean whatever we want them to mean, then they're meaningless. Let me say it again. If words mean whatever we want them to mean, then they have become meaningless, right? And finally, she says this, number five, your church might be headed toward progressive Christianity if the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Now, the fact of the matter is there's always a truth in these things. And so on the whole subject of social justice, there is a biblical justice that is woven throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that yes and amen, the Bible calls the Christian community to defend those who are oppressed to come alongside the widow and the orphan, to care for the poor, to pour our lives out for the betterment of humanity, and to ultimately preach the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, that through his death, his burial, his resurrection, we can be reconciled to a holy God. But it is when the distinction between that gospel message of repentance and turning to a holy God and being reconciled as being the path to our freedom, as only social justice is the path to our freedom. And here at the core, we will hear people say, well, all people are basically good. And so we don't need to preach the gospel. We need to simply love and bring justice. Now, I told you last week that we would throw up, not that we would throw up, that we would put up on the board some recommended resources. Now, I'm going to throw seven up here. Two of them are old and five are new, and we are also post these on the website. So if you, don't, if you want to get a shot of these, fine, but if you want to just go to the website and look at them later. Two oldies but goodies. And I said already last week, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, foundational for all of these talks. You must read it. Uh, J.I. Packer, 1973, Knowing God. And then some new ones. Alyssa Childers, Another Gospel. David Young's The Grand Illusion. Michael J. Kruger, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. Roger Olson, Against Liberal Theology. And Sharon James, The Lies We're Told and the Truth We Must Hold. All of those are good books that would be well worth your time looking into. Finally, we've got to equip ourselves for this battle. So I started by saying that Northview holds a high view of Scripture. That we want to be men and women of the book. And it's why the majority of the year, every weekend as we gather, we typically are going verse by verse through books of the Bible. That is our most common fare. A series like this, a topical series, is actually uncommon for us. We're typically doing a book study verse by verse through because we believe that this book holds the keys to life and to flourishing. And so we ask you regularly, are you getting your roots down deep into God's word and into Christian community? Because if you are not deeply rooted, you will not withstand the winds that are blowing against us. 
And so I just want to briefly remind you three personal challenges to each one in the room. We must take this matter seriously. Jesus' most common command, did you know this? His most common imperative, the word command that he used more than any other word group, were these little words, watch, be alert, stay awake. All the words in that family of words, stay awake, be alert. And the challenge in the so-called Christian culture that we live in is that you can get away with being a lukewarm Christian. Because you can sort of float along with the culture, and the culture will affirm. It's, it's easy to go with the flow when the culture is Christian. But in times of war, in times of spiritual war, alertness is a matter of life and death. And so one of my prayers for Northview is the two sides of the same coin. I, I am praying that God would instill within us a deep soberness. And a deep seriousness and alertness to the challenging times that are facing us, that we would be deeply reflective, deeply serious, deeply thinking and praying in the times that we have been given. But the flip side of that coin, the other side is equally true, that we would also be a deeply joyful people. That we would be convinced of the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we would be so aware of the resources that are at our disposal so grateful for godly men and women who've gone ahead of us and the godly men and women in our lives and so hopeful because we know how the story ends that our lives would be characterized by such deep and abiding joy, not a happy, clappy emotionalism, but a joy that comes from deep within, like the words to the old hymn, it is well with my soul. A deep soberness and a deep joy. And if we're gonna get there, we gotta train. We gotta train for godliness. You've heard us talk about this a lot. So 1 Timothy 4 says this, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. You know what? The older you get and the harder it is to stay in physical fitness, this verse becomes more meaningful. It's like, yeah, forget about all that physical fitness. Let's just train to be godly. But then he goes on in 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. No, 2 Timothy 2, rather, go on. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, I, I paraphrase down that little verse. Paul is challenging Timothy, three different word pictures, and the common denominator between those three, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, you know what the common denominator is. It is stinking hard work. A tenaciousness of spirit. Because the soldier, if the soldier survives boot camp, if they make it through boot camp, they are now steeled in body and in mind. They are literally in the best physical condition that they have ever been in their life. They are alert. They are aware because there is an enemy that might kill them. The athlete, which of course was Paul's favorite metaphor, if the athlete is going to win Olympic gold... He or she will literally discipline and beat their body to make it their slave, Paul says, to keep their body under control because they know that the only one who's going to win the crown is the one who is ultimately in control of their body. So the athlete tenaciously trains. And then, of course, you will know this, that anyone who can make a living as a farmer works from dawn till dusk. Do they not? 
hardworking, tenacious men or women. And the bottom line is this, that if we're going to stand the winds of culture of our time, then we have to take our training seriously. And I don't even need to know you, but I know that you are disciplined in some other areas of your life across this room. Some of you are incredibly disciplined in your money management, others in your pursuit of education, some in building your career or your business, some even disciplined in your hobbies like gardening and fitness and sports. Wonderful. But what about our spiritual training? The basic disciplines of, of Bible reading and prayer, just those two alone. I, I mean, that's why this year we've invited you, challenged you, that if you've never read through the Bible, join us this year in 2023. In fact, just a little side note, we're going into June 1. Every month we print a new schedule. So if you've dropped off or you didn't start, join us in June. Pick up one of those reading schedules and join us. Finally, we've got to know our equipment well, our spiritual equipment, like the soldier the farmer and the athlete who have a unique set of equipment, so too God outfits us for life and ministry through the word. And as much as we need to be students of the culture and of our times and aware of the winds that are blowing, and as much as we love to dive into politics and, and medical ethics and conspiracy theories and all those kind of things, we need to be more so students of this book. Because the better we know this book, the better we will be equipped to sniff out anything that is slightly off. Some of you probably heard this story. It's been told over and over and over again. The first time I saw it was in John MacArthur's book, Reckless Faith, way back in the 90s. He said this, federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. Then when they see bogus money, they recognize it. Detecting a spiritual counterfeit requires the same discipline. Master the truth to refute error. Don't spend time studying error. Shun it. Study truth. Hold fast the faithful word. I'm sure you have heard that story before. There's a Baptist pastor in Toronto, Tim Chalice, and he said he, he heard that story so many times, and he wondered, is this actually true? Is this how counterfeit money people are trained? And so through a long story short, he got an appointment with the Bank of Canada. He worked through the bureaucracy system and got an invitation to come into the security system and interview with a woman who trains counterfeit money detectors. She sat him down at a table with a stack of bills in front of him saying, some of these are real, some of these are counterfeit. And now I'll tell you how we do it. And it was precisely what MacArthur had said. You study the real thing. You feel it because real money feels different than fake money. You look at it intently. You tilt it. You see the holograms. You hold it up and you look through it because there's watermarks and symbols. You become a student of the real thing so that the false thing stands out. Each one of us is building a life for ourselves, for our family, for our community. And innately true about every one of us is the desire for an abundant life. And you know this, that there is a battle being waged over our lives, and it is primarily a battle for our minds. The battle is real. It is the oldest battle on earth. And so simply remind you, this weekend is foundational to this series, that Northview Church, if you've got any question about it, Northview is a church that actually believes the Bible is true. We teach it, we preach it, we believe it to be authoritative, and if I had one desired outcome from this message, it would be this, that we would be men and women of this book, not just in word, 
not just intellectual assent, but in the day in and day out realities of our life that everything this book teaches and implies would come our, become our anchor and our foundation for flourishing. Because you know what? It's easy to point at the culture. And so friends, even as we go into these next three weekends, as we talk about racism and critical race theory, as we talk about the sanctity of life and medical assistance and dying and abortion, as we talk about human sexuality, it's so easy to, as Christians, hold our Bible and go, oh yeah, all those horrible people out there. But let me challenge you, brothers and sisters. Are you willing to take this book and talk to the person who looks back at you in the mirror and say, if I say this book is the authority for my life, is it really the authority for my life? In every single area of my life, not the culture's life, not those horrible people out there, what about me? Is my life being focused by this word? In money, sex, education, work, family, you name it, every area of your life, is it being shaped by this book? That's the question. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. We'll sing and we'll be on our way. Father, uh, as we go into some very important topics, I pray that you would anchor us to these fundamentals. That first and foremost, we are a people who unapologetically have embraced a theistic worldview. We, we just fundamentally believe that it is the only way it makes sense of our world is if there is a designer, if there is a creator, if there is a God who set this world in motion and therefore has authority as our creator to tell us what our lives of flourishing should look like. But secondly, Lord, that you didn't leave us guessing, that you are a speaking God, and that through creation, through our conscience, through Jesus himself, of course, and through the written word, that you have given us, as Peter says, everything for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, that everything we need for daily life, we actually have it, and that the Holy Spirit will teach us. And so, Lord, would you seal those things into our hearts as we try to stand in a winsome way in the midst of this culture that you have called us to be agents of salt and light. Pour out your Spirit on us, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.